Coming up on this week's show, will we finally get Speedball 3? The Bitmap Brothers are back. New Super Mario Land is ported to the SNES. And we chat retro gaming with the original stadium rave act, Utah Saints. This week's show is brought to you by Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. Welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 201. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's podcast. Now, uh, we do just have to say, I mean, last week, we got all the, you know, the back slapping and the hugging and the self-praise and all out the way. We are now into the 200s, but we did just want to say a big welcome. Uh, because last week's show did do particularly well i think it's fair to say yeah it was awesome seeing us up there with gardener's question time <laughs> and uh, all the other big shows in the kind of leisure category which they now have on apple podcasts yeah except we had charlie brooker on obviously last week i'm sure you've heard it by now um probably the biggest episode of the show we've ever done we nearly doubled our audience last week so there's a lot of new people who probably come into the show this week if they hung around after it that is <laughs> <laughs> so i thought we'd just do a little introduction i mean you know I, we appreciate everyone that listens every week as well you probably know i'm dan I host the show, I kind of tie it all together, um, big fan, lifelong fan of video games, mainly a bit of a computer kind of background, but you know, love the console stuff too. Ravi's our real like, proper tech nerd, isn't he? Yeah, yeah big time. <laughs> I, I, I'm into the coding and I love getting guests on the show and kind of researching and doing all that really nerdy stuff. I always feel like Ravi's like the dodgy one as well, he always knows everything about like how to copy games and how to pirate things and I, stuff I know like that, that. I know the hacks. <laughs> he yeah. knows all the hacks. If this house like ever that. gets raided, <laughs> it'll just vanish one day. <laughs> they, won't, they won't be able to work it out. They'll be like, what's this old system? <laughs> and Joe, our console lord, who also wears leather trousers. <laughs> <laughs> what a leather trousers? Brings the rock and roll aspect to the show. I bring the rock and roll aspect to the show, apparently. But I don't wear leather, uh, leather trousers. But uh, yeah, I guess I'm the console kind of guy, the 16-bit, 8-bit, 32-bit guy. I and guess. you're in a metal band. You should wear leather trousers. I don't wear I wear leather trousers, but yeah, I'm in a metal band as well. Oh, what, I'm not, I can't see below the I'm desk. just wearing normal black jeans. <laughs> He's wearing Y fronts. I don't no, even know you're probably going to get dressed. <laughs> so, yeah, if you are new to the podcast, uh, we come out every Friday. Welcome on board. And to everyone that's been there for the last 201 episodes, as it will be now, great to have you back again. Now, this week, um, following on from Charlie Brooker, a nice little start to the 200s, actually. We're keeping it going with, uh, you can say, another couple of celebrity guests this week. Yeah, we're not taking our foot off the accelerator here we've got some absolutely amazing guests uh utah saints one of the kind of greatest stadium rave acts like you know in the 90s these guys were the original guys that went mental with samples yeah and they got top 10 hits but they did it all with an atari st so it's going to be a really interesting talk they were involved in a lot of gaming system stuff like the Philips CDI launch they also were involved with the Mortal Kombat soundtrack so <laughs> well, that's pretty Joe, awesome Joe loves his video game movies I do love video game movies there you go there's a little bit more about me <laughs> <laughs> is Mortal Kombat one of your favourite films love it the yeah. first one <laughs> yeah yeah well these guys you know you, you here at the end of the film actually Utah Saints did a, a track in there uh, stuff like you know Wipeout Carmageddon as well interesting you mentioned the Philips CDI launch they were involved in too because that's quite an interesting story and they are big video game fans too so uh, we're going to really nerd out about retro gaming and get some stories because what I love doing is you know we get people on like Utah Saints and Charlie Brooker for example people don't naturally associate them with video games but I think there is this, you know as we kind of said last week a lot of these kind of closet gamers out there have actually got a really interesting history well you know you sit there and you watch some of their music videos and yeah. they've got the virtual reality headsets on they've got references to titles and stuff and, and it's all around that kind of gaming culture but a lot of it's been forgotten because you know it, it was back in the days and there was so much good stuff coming out at the time you don't notice these tiny little details. And even their videos looked a lot like kind of demo rave. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Stuff, yeah even the logo, the Utah yeah, yeah. Saints logo <laughs> would spin around and it would go in and out of it, kind of like a gaming demo. So make sure you hang around for this. A really good one. Tim and Jez from the Utah Saints are going to be our special guests on the show in around 15 minutes from now. Now, before we get into the news, there's some really good stories that we need to talk about this week. Um, every week on the show, we bring you up to date with what's been happening in the world of retro gaming, along with a special guest. But we want to give a big thank you to a very loyal supporter of the retro our podcast and something we're a massive fan of as well and this is our very good friends at the legendary holding it in my hand here retro gamer magazine now retro gamer of course the only monthly magazine that you can walk in pick it up off the high street i love the fact that you can walk in at wh smith or asda or you know little news agent at the train station or whatever and pick up a copy of a magazine dedicated 
to our favourite hobby in the world, to retro gaming. Now, they give you exclusive access to classic developers, giving you behind-the-scenes stories about these games and these systems that you grew up playing, speak to the biggest names in the industry about this legacy they've left, and also get to revisit your favourite games of all time and uncover things you didn't know about them. Now, at the moment, their 200th issue is on the shelves. And one thing I love about Retro Gamer as well is, you know, not only these incredible articles and reviews and making ofs that they do, but also the opinion pieces. Now, Ian Lee, who is, um, you know, he's a well-known celeb in the UK. He, again, is one of these kind of closet retro gamers. You know, if, you, if you're in the retro gaming scene, you'll know that he is. But people who watched him at like the 11 o'clock show and stuff like that probably Yeah, I, I remember he did a great documentary called Fun Candy and also uh, Fun Bandits, of course, Yeah, yeah. Channel 4. And he was on Amazon, I'd get me out of here as well. But actually he does a, a column every month in Retro Gamer. And this month he's talking about the fact that he's only just played Tetris for the first time. Oh, wow. And obviously, you know, he's done documentaries before with... Um, Alexei Pajitnov, the guy behind Tetris, and completely lied to him, said it was one of his favourite games ever. He only just played it for the first time this month. Yeah, because <laughs> that was the actual documentary we mentioned. Yeah, 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 I remember the clip where you were showing him kind of the uh, little tetronomes that it was yeah. based on. Well, he hadn't played it till this month. If you read this month's edition of Retro Game, you'll find out. <laughs> Winging it the whole time. And uh, Mr. Biffo, um, he's talking in there, this is a really interesting opinion piece, about the fact that console design today sucks. And he's talking about, you know, the legendary look of, like, the Mega Drive and the PS1. And then he gets something like the Xbox One. It's a boring slam. Yeah, game consoles back in the day, they had a real... You knew it was a game console. They even had that, like, wood look to them or that futuristic, you know, inverted commas, 90s look to them. And now they just look like a Blu-ray player or a DVD yeah. player. They could I, just I be think the GameCube of, was the coolest yeah, last Yeah, you, you just don't get anything yeah. like that anymore, do you? Well, he's even talking about the fact, you know, you had that text around the Mega Drive, you know, high definition, yeah, exactly. all, all that, like, sexiness that was on there. Uh, they also got a feature in here about bedroom coding and being the 200th issue, there is a timeline of gaming from the 1960s onwards, uh, starting at the creation of Space War, you know, the first true video game, interviews and other guys like Al Acorn, Nolan Bushnell. So it is a real collector's edition if you're a fan of video games. Now, we want to give you a little offer because we think, you know, you should be reading Retro Gamer magazine. So just for listeners of the Retro Hour podcast, this is what I want you to do. You can subscribe today and get a free 8-bit dough controller of your choice. Now, these are really sexy. These are Bluetooth controllers, six different editions to choose from, including NES, GameCube, Mega Drive or Game Boy editions. And you can play these on systems like your Nintendo Switch. Yeah. Which is really cool because, I mean, there's a lot of retro games on the Switch. Yeah, no, it's a perfect controller for the games. You know, they've recently added on a bunch of SNES games in the last couple yep. of months as well, so perfect for that. Or if you have like, on your PC, your Mac, yep. works on them, Linux, Android, Switch. So we want to give you six months of Retro Gamer, which is cheaper than you'll get it in the newsagents, just 25 quid, and also will include a beautifully retro-style Bluetooth controller worth £30 normally, absolutely free. So claim this right now while it's on. All you've got to do is nip onto this website, myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash retro 8 dough. That is retro, number eight, B-I-T-D-O, myfavouritemagazines.co.uk, forward slash retro 8-bit-do with Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. And I'd just like to say before we go into the news, thank you for everybody that came to see us in Fursk in New Yorkshire. We had a really cool little panel that we did and, you know, guys bought us presents and yeah. stuff. Yeah, it, that it was, was amazing. It was so nice and we've recorded it and we're going to put it on YouTube over Christmas. You know what I absolutely loved about it as well? A guy came up to us, a really lovely guy called uh, Jonah, I think his name was, and he gifted us some items and he gave us all a big, massive box of Yorkshire tea as a bit of a joke present. But we were all like, oh, that's amazing. Thanks, man. Uh, We all took it really well. Like, you know, we didn't see it as a joke. Anyway, on the car on the way back, Ravi turns around to us and goes, oh, so uh, seeing as how we all we got three boxes of tea, we'll split that and I'll take it all home, yeah. <laughs> I was like, how is that? What? I'm obsessed with tea. <laughs> to be fair, he is the biggest tea drinker here. He is though. the biggest yeah, yeah. tea drinker here. No, we, we didn't let him though, so just, just to put that out there. But yeah, we did an event in Thirst last weekend, Podcast Social Club, it was a really cool event. Yeah. First one they've done up there and it was, you know, it's great to get out to different parts of the country and the, and the world as well. So uh, if you did come down, great to see you there and like Ravi said, we'll put the video on uh, YouTube as well so you can check it out there if you want a bit of extra retro hour podcast in your life this week. Right, let's get into this week's news stories then, because this one was really interesting. The Bitmap Brothers. Now, obviously, we've had uh, Mike Montgomery on the show, didn't yeah. we? Very early episode, that one of our first. And they did some incredible games back in the day. I mean, really, for me, you know, on the Amiga, they did some of the my favourite games back then, stuff like Xenon, you know, it was a great shoot 'em up game. Chaos Engine. Gods as well. Yeah, um, Speedball. That is Speedball 2 particularly 
was an incredible game. But, I mean, we've had a couple of kind of re-releases and upgrades over the years, but really not much has been done with the Bitmap Brothers brands until today. Now, Rebellion have actually acquired the Bitmap Brothers brand, and apparently, not only do they now own the former studio's entire portfolio of games, they have confirmed they're going to be bringing those classics to modern platforms. So I'm thinking... Bit my brother's compilation for the Nintendo Switch. That's my first well, thought straight yeah, away. Yeah. yeah. Well, can I tell you about Rebellion? Yeah. Because yeah. they're absolutely amazing company. So I'm a big 2000 AD fan. Yeah. And for me, it was like a franchise that was kind of a bit, a bit lost. You know, they tried to release Judge Dredd movies in the 90s and stuff. It, it was a bit lost. But when Rebellion took it on, mm. they did an absolutely fantastic movie that came out. They've reduxed a lot of the game. So they've done... Rogue Trooper Redux. They've also oh, okay. got um, Judge Dredd versus Judge Death. So we may be seeing like some Bitmap Brothers kind of films coming out of this, or even television series, as well as the original games, probably with Redux versions. And Rebellion do this stuff really, really well, taking these old kind of franchises, giving them a lick of paint, putting a new storyline out, and getting stuff done. F- Really, really well. Like, I don't know if any of you guys saw the Judge Dredd film, but it was all in VR, uh, 3D. It was fantastic. Which one? The, the newest one? Latest. The latest yeah, one, yeah. the 2012 Dredd. one. I mean, I love them both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in terms of, like, which is actually the better film, I, yes, the second one yeah. is, is a really, really fantastic So I think film. it's great because they've got every aspect covered here. They yep. can bring out the video games, comics, books, television as well. And and film. That, that Battlezone um, update they did for PlayStation VR as well, that was fantastic. Oh, really yeah. Really but they are good. saying not only are they going to, you know, kind of get the old games on modern systems, but also they're going to make new titles based on its beloved licenses as well. Fantastic. So, I mean, that, that's pretty much, come on, that, that's Speedball 3 confirmed. Surely Chaos Engine HD, <laughs> yeah. it's got to happen now, isn't oh, it? So Chaos Engine, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that would actually work well as a film, yeah, actually, yeah. I think. So, yeah, it's great to see. I mean, you know, Bitman Brothers, they were always, it was kind of like sensible as well. But then they were kind of the, the stamp of quality you'd look for in a game. And I'd just get anything that they did, so I knew it was going to be well, good. Well, look at the stuff that's come out and that's been revived recently. Yeah. If you look at, like, XCOM series, that was, that was kind of really put into the... Uh, shelves hidden away and then XCOM suddenly came out and became one of the biggest things didn't it so. yes yeah, so if you want to read more about that I'll put that and everything else we talked about we do it every week all our stories are in our show notes at theretrohour.com maybe playing games is not enough for you maybe you actually want to go inside and become part of video games I don't know I'd be pretty scared depends what game it is no, in my luck, I'd end up in bloody aliens or something. <laughs> <laughs> Joe has to live forever in Mortal Kombat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this is, it's a new immersive gaming experience that's happening okay. in London. And this is essentially, they're calling this a digital arcade booth right. where you become part of classic games, including Pac-Man, which I think we, we, we talked about that recently. That yeah. Being inside Pac-Man would be scary. It was, it was in like Florida, a, wasn't there? Pac-Man was like, maze, A Pac-Man maze yeah. in Florida, which is, uh, was over a Halloween they do every year. So that's interesting. There's one coming to London. But this looks really, really really different so yeah. it, it's kind of mad they've got these like visor headsets on and at the top of them they've got these like little aerial things but they look like old school tv kind of antennas. <laughs> yeah they look i thought I, I assumed it was vr but uh, no no. But no no and they're kind of moving around the room and as they move around the room or move their head i guess they're yeah. affecting how the game's played it would be amazing to see how accurate this is and it looks like it's like fully immersive it's 360 all the way around them yeah, uh, video screens cool. well you walk into an empty room and then apparently all these projectors come on and they bring the room to life around you yeah so then yeah you get you know you become part of the game you see it all around you, you are immersed in it multiplayer games in here um they've got stuff in there like you know um interactive games challenges memory tests agility training as well but also you mentioned these antennas have got that is so the system can track the player's position in the room okay so it knows where they are but it also means you can do stuff kind of like you can play breakout and you, you become the paddle and move and stuff <laughs> like that so that looks awesome and also you can be pac-man and run around and collect you know coins and stuff like that while avoiding ghosts in the room so this looks loads of fun actually um and I always love stuff like this. I mean, admittedly, they are a bit of a gimmick, but I think for multiplayer, getting your mates together, yeah. going in here, it looks like such a yeah. And it's uh, uh, London South Bank and open to the public. Yeah, it's called Electronic Theatre, if you want to go visit it, open in London now. Now, another story that's been making the headlines everywhere and, uh, you know, hopefully not incurring the wrath of Nintendo because they do have a little bit of a habit for kind of stomping on fan projects it's like this. a matter of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, get it in there before Nintendo take it down, Joe. What, what's happened with Super Mario Land? 
So we've got a guy out here who's remained anonymous, uh, which I think sometimes is the best thing to do when yes. it comes to Nintendo. <laughs> Very wise. Who has, essentially, he has remade Super Mario Land, which is the original 1989 Game Boy version yeah. of Mario for the Super Nintendo, pretty much using assets from new Super Mario Brothers, you know, for the, the Wii, the Wii U, and the Switch. And he's completely recreated the entire game by the looks of it. Uh, you know, like kind of, not pixel for pixel, but like, you know, sprite for sprite of Super Mario Land. So those people who are familiar with it, they got the Game Boy with Super Mario Land rather than Tetris, when, you know, a little bit later than Tetris. It's It looks superb, but apparently he's made it on his own from scratch using some, you know, emulation and stuff like that, but he said it's not emulation or anything like that. It's running right natively. It, it's running natively, yeah. But pretty much what it started out as is just a little, you know, it's not... A, it, it, I'm going to call it a homebrew, but it's not a homebrew. He's made it from scratch. But it started out as just a little home project between him and his mates to celebrate the 30th, and I think somebody's pretty much dumped it online now by the looks of things. It does. It looks pretty cool, and it runs really well, and it's even got, like, the bonus stage at the end of the level... Uh, you know, with the ladders where you can pick if you're going to get the flower or the life or... Do you know what I mean? It's pretty it, cool. It looks very Game Boy Advance to me, but also yeah. like Donkey Kong Country when they did the kind of scanning. Digitized. Of the the fake 3D. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it does kind of... It reminds me of the DS version of, you know, New Super Mario Brothers. Like, that's probably the closest I can describe it because obviously it, it doesn't look anywhere near as polished as, let's say... Mario Maker because you could claim it's been made in Mario Maker or something but it does you can tell from just looking at it, it hasn't been made in that well as with this you know it might get taken down by Nintendo but it hasn't been officially released for fans, but can be oh, found on various oh, okay, forums yeah. and ROM can sites. Be, yes. what, what were you saying? Do- about dodgy Ravi. <laughs> dodgy Ravi, man. Dodgy Ravi over here. If anyone, just tweet Ravi if you want to get hold of it. <laughs> Unless you're Nintendo. <laughs> now, another title that's um, been really hyped in the world of retro, and it's, it's another one of these projects that's been brought to life through fan passion, really, you could say. And this is Shenmue 3. And the reviews are in. It's getting good reviews. You see, this is the thing me and Ravi were talking about this earlier on. I live and breathe retro gaming and stuff like that in games. I didn't even know it was out yet. Right. So <laughs> I've not seen, like, it's not like I've not been online this week or anything. I've been online, you know, I've been on YouTube and stuff. I've not really seen any adverts for it. And the thing is, you know, we spoke about this quite a few times on the show. Yeah. And it's just not stuck with me, the release date and stuff like that. So I'm a little bit disappointed in myself. Um, but apparently it's not done too well so far. Well, it's, it's weird because we've got an article here from the Metro and they're mm. kind of saying it fails to hit the top 10 of the latest UK sales chart, but like it's still doing really well. And it's then, number 17, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I yeah. think you made a point as well that, you know, there was 70,000 people that backed that as well, so maybe they're not actually yeah, does that encountered as part does of that include the... Does that yeah. I don't yeah. think it will either. But at the same time, uh, what you've got to remember is Shenmue 1 and 2 didn't set the world on fire. They were niche games. It was a they sl- were, slow burner, games. wasn't they were, it? They were you slow know. burners. Mm. And financially, like in terms of you know critical acclaim, successful games, but in terms of financial games, I don't think they were that successful because they both had massive like $100 million budgets, didn't they? Or yeah. something mad like that. So, I don't know. It's, it's a tough one, but it, it looks nice. Yeah, and apparently the Metro is nice. saying, you know, it's, it's barely made a ripple in the UK physical sales charts at the moment. I think, again, though, it's... I mean, you were looking through... The games that are in there. It's your Call of Duties. Yeah. <laughs> and I was Mario looking... Kart is still in there. Yeah. But that's also physical sales as yeah. well. Yeah. You know, yeah. Actual, yeah. I mean, yeah, like you say, well, that's that's the disappointing thing. I'm looking through the top 10 chart and Mario Kart 8 Deluxe is still number seven mm. and Minecraft yeah. is still number yeah, eight. Yeah, the... I can believe that though, yeah. I, I can believe that as well, but it is, it, it is, I guess it's a little bit disappointing to see that Shenmue hasn't overtaken that because yeah, how, but... how many people, are, you know, you got to think like, if they're still in there, it's not like there's millions of people buying them games. Number one's Call of Duty, number two's a new Star Wars game. Yeah, millions of people are buying those games right now. But there isn't millions of people out there currently buying Mario Kart 8. You know what week. I think that is? I think because obviously people are going out buying Christmas presents now. And if you're buying See, the it Switch, could be that. Yeah. Could be that. You're going to get that, aren't you? Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, essentially, this Shenmue 3, that it's it's a big indie game, really. Mm. It's crowd supported. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, the fact that it's even in the top 20, I think, is impressive. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. When you get up against games like that. So um, if you have played it, let us know what you think of it. We're on social media as well, of course. You can uh, tweet us anytime at Retro UK. Now, before we get into our chat this week with the Utah Saints, it's going to be a good one. The internet is obviously something that we spend a lot of time on these days, but it turned out, back in the day, a lot of people in Britain weren't that confident that the internet would ever be a thing. 
No, this is kind of crazy uh, if you look at it now from our perspective. Yeah. But um, there's an article here in The Sun that's talking about how there was a poll in the 90s that actually researched, you know, adults and the use of the internet. And a lot of them were kind of saying, this is just going to be a small little quick thing. Now, I've got some quotes here. And uh, Michael Graham, 66 from Leeds, confessed he wasn't sure about the internet in the early days. He thought it was something more likely to be in sci-fi programs like Star <laughs> Trek's, and it shouldn't be in the homes of the nation. Uh, there's loads of little... I kind agree of, with him. Yeah, quotes <laughs> like this. And, you know, if you think about it, like, a lot of people thought it would be very hard for the older generations yeah. to get adapted to this new technology, and we've had to learn a, a hell of a lot. I think even the generations that are coming up after us aren't going to probably have as much understanding as the internet as the original people in the kind of dot-com boom because they saw it come from scratch to kind of what it is nowadays. Yeah, it's an interesting point. So I guess, you know, we've got experience of like, you know, building GeoCities pages and Notepad and that back in the day. I guess now if you're a kid, you, the internet's just there, isn't it? It's like TV. Mm. You maybe, I don't know if you take it, take it for granted almost. It's just always there. It's just, yeah, yeah like you say, I guess it's a difficult one because back in the day, people, you know, decades ago and stuff they would have seen tv in the same respect yeah. some people would have done but like you say now people young younger people and stuff like that it's the internet's just the internet it's just there and everything's so connected like yeah. you know smart meters light your bulbs. house light bulbs <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. everything washing yeah. machines yeah. on wi-fi <laughs> yeah. and i can see what these guys are saying i mean you've got to put like you said in perspective this was done back in the 90s and a lot of these people are talking about i mean they're already in the 60s and stuff then what we class as silver surfers i believe well, yeah. actually a big demographic online these days but I mean you probably would think it's you know if you didn't grow up with computers and stuff I can see why people might have thought it's just a bit of a novelty so when the internet first came around do you remember they were selling it as the internet it was the the information superhighway yeah so you go on it just be like you know encyclopedias and stuff like mm. that so you wouldn't think that it would be as ingrained in our life today well a is. lot of people were saying you know when it first came out it seemed like it was a governmental service or yeah. it was a service for researchers or like it was library books. Yeah, and it wasn't something for fun. No, you know, I guess that so, yeah. Is, yeah. <laughs> right, we've got our retro picks coming up in just a minute and uh, we'll go through this week's Hall of Fame as well. Enjoying the show? Why not check out some other great retro gaming podcasts like Retro Asylum, RGDS, Maximum Power Up, Arcade Attack, Arcade Perfect and the Ten Pence Arcade. See, it's not just us. There are plenty of other retro gaming podcasts out there if you want to get your fix throughout the week as well. So all you've got to do is give them a quick search in your favourite podcast app, you'll find them. Now, let's give a big thank you to the people who allow us to come in and do the Retro Hour podcast for you every single Friday. Get these incredible guests, do these incredible events, and we'll keep us going into 2020. And these are people who found it in their lovely hearts to make a donation into the running of the show. And anyone that does that, I mean, it's dead easy to do it, Joe, isn't it? How do you, how do you get in the Hall of Fame? Oh, bloody hell. You've got me again. <laughs> I have to right. test you on this. So you go week. on our website. Yep. What's the address? www.retrohour.com. No, Sorry, sorry. So, theretrohour.com. In learn, yeah. I'll get there eventually one day. You see, this just goes to show how often I donate. <laughs> and you have got a supporters tab yep. in the top corner. You click on there and literally you can support through PayPal, any currency, uh, you name it. Any any sum of money goes directly straight back into the running of the show. There you go. What do you think? B minus? Yeah, yeah, on, yeah. On the test? Just needs yeah. to get the URL right. Yeah, get the URL right, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll test you next week again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, exactly like Joe said, it's essentially a tip jar. So, if you like what we do, throw a couple of quid in there, a couple of dollars, a couple of euros. Keeps us going into 2020. And for doing that, you'll get a shout on the show. Just like Christian Dish, Peter Matteson, Gareth Murphy, and Tom Fitzgerald, who all made donations into the running of the show. And you can do the same at... TheRetroHour.com. That's the one. Way. <laughs> right, let's do our retro picks. Now, these are every week. We do a little retro recommendation, you know, stuff we've seen during the week. It could be videos, it could be games, it could be articles we've read. Mm. Kind of something that's maybe not, you know, doesn't deserve a full news story. It's not that big, but something we find interesting. Uh, this week, I want to actually mention something that Ravi's been on this week. Now, this is um, our good friend Neil from Retro Man Cave. You had a really interesting video with um, the Amigos podcast guys, um, Guru Meditation as well, talking about essentially memories of being an Amiga owner back in the day, but with a bit more of a US versus UK kind of slant, weren't you? Yeah, because we always kind of talk about the UK and it's really nice to see 
US perspective, how they got it from the shops, what, yeah. how they were kind of sold it. Because for us, there was there was a lot of Amiga around for the US. It was like a very rare kind of obscure system. So we did a little kind of back and forth. It was a nice hour-long chat, quite casual paced. It was very yeah. nice. I watched it over, over dinner earlier on. It was really interesting, actually. So you want to check it out. Um, it's about an hour, like Ravi said. Link in the show notes. What have you been watching this week, then? Yeah, so I've been watching this absolutely fantastic channel. It's called Radio Workshop, and the website is www.radioworkshop.co.uk. Now, this guy is absolutely amazing. He does amateur radio. He'll talk about all the kind of new stuff, like, you know, these little bluetooth radios that you can put in to convert your older ones but he also tells stories of pirate radio from the 60s and, dodgy ravi oh, <laughs> there, there's some amazing stuff he there's, there's this one story where they got this um lady and she had a transmitter in her pram and she would uh push a pram pretending she had a baby in the park and then connect it to the aerial no way. and then earth it into the <laughs> ground as well so there's loads of amazing tales on this one so really recommend it if you want to sit down cup of tea and listen to some stuff about amateur radio what's your retro pick joe this week so mine's an interesting one uh, so mine's actually a game i've been playing this week it's not quite a retro it's not a retro game it's not a brand new game it's a game called minute right. that actually came out last year it's spelled M-I-N-I-T, so minutes spelled I-T. Uh, and it's a very interesting game, which is currently free on Xbox One Game Pass, which is why I kind of picked it up. A friend of mine recommended it. And it's got a real, real retro kind of look and vibe to it. It's a top-down adventure game, plays like the original Legend of Zelda game. But what it is is essentially a you're a cursed character and you can only live for a minute. Right. <laughs> when a minute is up, you die, and you have to get as far as possible. But... There's dungeons and only little dungeons and puzzles throughout the game. And it's very Monkey Island-esque. It's like there'll be a guy asking for water. So you go do a quest and you find a watering can. But then the watering can stays in your inventory after the minute is up. So it's just a really cool, cute little game. My wife really got into it as well. So if you're on Xbox One, uh, it's on Game Pass at the moment for free. And it's on every other platform, Switch, PS4, Steam. I think it's only a couple of quid anyway. Sounds really, challenging. It is challenging. Yeah. It's good. I've spent about an hour or so on it. Apparently, it's only about three, four hours long anyway. Really interesting game um, if you just want a little retro fix. That cool. sounds well cool. Now, before we get into our chat this week, you're actually going to be an event this weekend, uh, Retro yeah. Computer Museum in Leicester, Christmas party. Yeah, so that will be tomorrow yep. on Saturday. <laughs> and I'm going to be DJing there till about 8 o'clock. We're going to be doing a party. starts at 10. It's a £10 donation on the door. And it's all to support the Retro Compute Museum, Leicester. Then you're going to have to get wrecked. No, no, I'm just going to have a <laughs> drink with... Don't make me sound too bad. <laughs> Don't too rabbit, you get wrecked. Don't rabbit, you get A few nice drinks in town afterwards. Yeah. I can't make it, I'm out with the family. I'd rather be at the Retro Compute Museum than out with the family. But yeah, if you are going down, have an amazing time. Uh, well, I'll put a link to everything we mentioned there in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now let's chat to this week's very special guest all about the wonderful world of retro gaming. Amazing dance music back in the day. This week's guest from the Utah Saints, Tim and Jess. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome our very special guest this week. Always our favourite part of the show. And this week we're joined by two absolute legends. I've got to say it, Jez and Tim from the U U Utah Saints. <laughs> welcome to the show. Hi, thanks Thank for having us. That's cool, that. That's good to eat. We don't get that very often. I was going to say, but you've never heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, people will be aware of your incredible career in dance music. Um, and they might be thinking, you know, so why are you guys on a retro gaming podcast then? But you guys have actually got quite a big history with gaming. I mean, starting with you, Jez, I mean, what, what originally got you into video games or computers and what, what kind of started it all for you? I got into electronic music, really. And I'd heard um, I Feel Loved by Donald Summer and I couldn't work out how they'd done it. And I, I, I could play a little bit of piano, but that was about it. And Yamaha brought out a music computer, and which was really intriguing. They brought, I think, called a CX-5. And um, it didn't really do any games, but it, it, it had a, a behemoth of a horrible... Well, no, it wasn't horrible, but it was a, a sequencer where you had to go from... Literally, to do one thing, you had to go through about three different screens and then go back to the original screen and keep the original screen, what it looked like, in your head while you went and <laughs> changed what you did. So... In itself, it was a bit like a game, basically, starting that. And uh, Tim will tell you this, is that I get quite stressed making music and worried about this. This is a bit of a, a bit of an exclusive, actually, because I don't really mention it much, but, but I get a little bit 
like every, when you're making something, you get big self-doubt about whether it's any good or not. Mm. And to, to kind of counteract that, I'm really bad for distracting myself with a computer game. So the first album probably took an extra week because of Tetris. Something really <laughs> simple. Uh, and uh, I, like I say, full credit to Tim, the other half of Utah Saints, for, for putting up with that. I, I wonder how many kind of projects and stuff were delayed because of Tetris. It's like the amount of man hours lost in jobs around the world due to that game. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Tim, then? What was kind of your start in computers and your, like, your favourite old school games and stuff then? So I, I, I was quite geeky. I remember having like, I had the ZX80 and the ZX81, the Sinclair. And they used to go buy um, a magazine from the shop called Computer and Video Games, and they used to print out all the, you know, all the games, and you could like, you'd have to type everything in. You, you, yeah, you put in all the code, and then you hit go at the end, and then it didn't work because you'd like missed a space out in one little lettering, or just it was so technical. You, so that was my first sort of entry into it, and then I, I just couldn't be doing with it. So um, the first ever game I got was a thing called Intellivision, mm. which was by Mattel, and everybody else got all my friends were getting you playing the Atari, and my dad um, got me because they were they were a little bit more expensive. They were they were about I remember at the time they were like two hundred pounds and. That, that was that's a lot of money for a game back then um and it's a lot of money now so it's equivalent to probably about six seven hundred pounds but i got one of those for christmas and i just i was totally hooked on it just just while we, tim was talking there i remember that sonic the hedgehog and when you tell thing this about when you talk about sonic the hedgehog now to people um and say when you switch the game off you've lost all your progress just i can just see people faces of disbelief <laughs> Um, but that was again something in which you once you embarked on that you had to keep going for several hours to get to the end as, as you may or may not know <laughs> yeah we had to leave the um, actual machine on so we'd do a level leave it on for a day and then go back yeah. and then play the other level <laughs> yeah yeah I think I think I've got a memory from when I was a kid of the TV setting itself on fire so ever since then I've got a slight paranoia about leaving things on overnight <laughs> Well, I've been talking about you know computers that you used in um, your production, the Atari ST. I know so many producers credit that computer as being a big part of developing their sound and you know integral in their studio. Was that a, a big machine for you guys in the ST? Yeah, we we had um, we had the Atari five twenty and the ten forty. All our first album was done on it. So, what can you do for me? Our very first track was done on on Atari, running Cubase, and. Um, yeah, and it, so everything was basically MIDI out of that because it had to build in MIDI port, so it was it was great for that. And the timing, um, we saw, I mean, we say by this now, swear by this now, that the timing on the Atari is still as tight as anything out there now. And when we switched over to Max, we 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 felt like the the MIDI timing on the Atari was still better, you know. So it was a massive part of us. And I, like, what can you do for it? It was made basically with an Atari running Cubase, an Akai S950 which had about 15 seconds of sampling time, and then we saved everything on floppy disk. Yeah, because I know a lot of people say that. Other machines, like you know, when you got the PC or the Mac, they needed sound cards and that kind of thing on MIDI cards that you slotted in, but the ST had them on board. And I know it's actually, I was watching a video of Fatboy Slim Studio, and he's he still got an ST in there. Yeah, and he he had you know he had pretty similar setup to us, and he actually switched over like quite late in the day because I remember things like Rockefeller Skank and Praise You and that they were all made as far as I'm aware. He still made those using like all the outboard gear and was using the Atari. And it's only really late in the day that he switched over. And it's kind of one thing I've always been wanting to do because we've still got all that equipment and the Atari. We've got about five or six Ataris, and they just about start. They really sometimes you have to kind of switch it on and you leave it for about forty minutes, and you can just about boot it up and but it's, it's like really tempting just to get that everything out again and just try and recreate a track on it or just make something because it was great fun making records that way um you were limited with some of the equipment you had so you kind of you had to be kind of your ideas it's all about the idea which it still is now but whereas sometimes now you can just draw from so much stuff and use plugins for this plugins for that you just you know if you've got a, just like a computer running the midi and a little sampler then it's only got 15 seconds of sampling time. You've got, you've got to be really creative to make a, a whole track out of that. Well, when Cubase com- came out, was it like completely revolutionary for you? Because I know we had bars and pipes on the Amiga, but Cubase coming out must have kind of made you change your setup, expand, add more effects. What did you, Jez used, uh, what did you use before Cubase? You used something else, didn't you? Yeah, that's a, yeah it was the, the Yamaha CX-5 I was talking about. And then um, we moved to, to, to a very basic uh, thing called... Steinberg, which was made by the same people who make Cubase, but it was Steinberg 12 or 
twelve track thing or a twenty four track thing. I went for the twelve track because it was cheaper. But basically, I mean, the, the reason the Atari was kind of you know completely solid was that it had a MIDI port out, and you just ran a sequencer from from the Atari, and then everything else was chained together with a whole kind of labyrinth of, of MIDI cables. So you hit go on the Atari, and it just sent all this information right out to all the outboard. And everything's done in a box now, but at the time, the, the Atari was kind of the brains of it. And it was a big shift for us because it meant that um, we could do more tracks and we could work a little bit quicker as well. So it was, it was the early Cubase was a, a real revolutionary shift. And I think there is something about using real hardware as well. I mean, I think Chemical Brothers' recent album, they used went back to using physical hardware rather than, you know, just Pro Tools, that kind of thing. So yeah. I, I guess there is something like, you know, a bit warmer about using actual hardware. When there's, there's a massive revival. I mean, if you look at the, the moment, there's a company called Behringer, and I was talking to Jazz about this earlier today, a company called Behringer, and they've made, like, clones of everything, like the 303, um, the Roland 808, and they're, re- they're you know, they're well-made and they're, they're really good. And they've made a, uh, a Moog one as well, and... SH101 role and stuff. So all all the classic analog um, units that were brought out in the day that people were using, you can get modern day versions of them now, which are which are all really really good. And so there's a massive revival on that. And people kind of went through a period of using loads and loads of plugins, but I think it is going back to a lot more hardware now. Well, um, talking about that, you kind of mentioned you've still got your STs. Do you like dust them off and pull them out when you need to do a remix? Load up the original sound files. Yeah, we do. Um, you know, because a few years ago we had we we did a remix of we brought What Can You Do for Me out again in 2011, and we had to get um we had to get the Atari out then and just to get try and get the MIDI stuff. And a lot it's it's scary though because like literally 50% of the, your floppy disks you just load them and it just it'll say bad data and that's that's game over. So sometimes luckily we did make quite a few backups in the day, but half the stuff has just gone through time. Um, and half of it is still there. So, if if we if we can find it and track it down, then we use it again. But we did we did save absolutely everything. We've got all the dats and we've got all the floppies. But like I say, half of them have, half of them have kind of just worn out basically over time. That's the thing with physical media, though, isn't it? It's a, it's got a, a shelf life. It has it has, and I think it's weird though because I think I think I'd, I'd, it'd be interesting to see what happens with digital stuff because I, I think people people will lose loads of stuff as well because computers. Some a lot of people don't still don't. I mean, it's the most basic thing, but a lot of people don't back up the hard drives, and then you know you can just store everything on, like music, photos, everything, and then suddenly a computer can die, and you can just lose everything. And I think there'd be a massive void, you know, looking back in the future of <laughs> stuff that's just missed. Well, you you guys obviously ran some clubs um, back in the day as well. I mean, how much did kind of the rave and computer scene crossover back then? Well, yeah, we we basically we we both started out as DJs and. Like Jess said, it was an industrial band, but he he did DJ as well, and I I DJed. I was in like the Technics DMC thing back in like '87, and then '88 I, I did it again, and I kind of got into the sort of last ten, so I did pretty well in that. And, but yeah, the the whole DJ thing for me, I was always I was just I was kind of like a culture person because I just loved all the things like skating, skateboarding. When I was at school, I loved DJing, I love computer games, and you know, and I was always kind of like the weird kid, and so I, I do always see a massive link, you know with those kind of things. Well, I, I love that you were in the DMC stuff because back in those days they had like, I remember seeing a video of a Russian guy remixing with two um, reel-to-reel tapes and kind of yeah. s- scratching on it. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, then it kind of, it, the thing about the DMCs is you have to just, it's like um, anything you do now, if you if you want to be the best at it, you have to devote, you know, it's like you can DJ and do a bit of scratching, but if you want to be the best, you can't, you, it's very difficult to sort of produce music and go out and, do other things you just have to stay in your room and scratch all day it's like if you do computer games and you want to do the best computer games you have to sit in your room all day and just concentrate on that because you to be the best in whatever you do do you know what i mean it's like you can you can have a good sort of skill rate of everything but to be to be the best and i realized mc thing you kind of don't get nothing for coming second in that You're, you you win it and you do really well and everybody knows about you and you can kind of get a career off it but if you come second no one's interested um, and just to pick up on the club thing as well, within Utah Saints, we always had a really tech-savvy kind of... Um, people who are into our music tend to be very tech-savvy. And as a result, I could still remember they'd, they'd always be um, interested in technology. And I can remember one guy in America turning up and he'd he'd made an entire jacket out of um, circuit boards. Although, as a fashion item, it perhaps wasn't 
the kind of at the top of the fashion tree um it was very interesting <laughs> so did you have any guys actually like going into the hardware and like looking at it at all because i remember a lot of the reggae artists used to build their own synthesizers and that would create some kind of crazy sound and like dub came out of that <laughs> yeah I, no, I was just gonna say i think we only circuit bent things by by accident usually it's just like we broke something and then it started making a different noise but it, we, we didn't do anything on purpose you know, when using the ST to create these big hits back in the day, I mean, did you do much post-production on the tracks then afterwards? Um, basically, we used to have to, uh, whereas now you could kind of like recall the mix. You, you can do a mix and you can finish it and you think, right, I'll just listen to it in the morning, check it on fresh ears, um, and you just switch everything on and you've saved it. What we had to do back then in the day was everything was coming up a big desk. So um, we'd do the track and we'd put it down and we'd, we'd like... We'd send it off to London. We'd go down to the station, put it on the Red Star, on a DAT. So it'd go on the train overnight and arrive in London in the morning. And then sometimes if we had to get on with another job in between, we'd have to just almost like take a photo of the desk. We'd want to get on with something else. And if someone came back and go, oh, you need to go back to that mix and change it, we'd have to try and replicate what we had exactly. We'd never get it exactly the same. Well, also, where did you guys get those kind of screaming crowd samples from because i used to play a lot of games and like when you'd win a screaming crowd sample would come up that sounds pretty similar to the ones that's in a lot of tunes allegedly similar allegedly <laughs> we, we couldn't possibly we couldn't possibly tell you where we got our crowd samples from so allegedly things sound similar <laughs> back when we started there was there was a lot of confusion about sampling and there was people used to say oh you could take this much and it's fine you you could sample two seconds or whatever but it, it's never been that's never been the case every sound is copyrighted once it's embedded so we would never of course sample something that we weren't supposed to but again i've just remembered something about the tech savvy audience as well mm. is that um I'd, what i can tell you and and again I, we haven't i don't think we've told anybody this but Steve Lamatt used to be on Radio 1, and he used to do a... Um, a it was the earlier days of the internet, so I'm, I don't know when it would have been, maybe mid-late 90s, something like that, and um, he used to do a thing where you you could vote for um, a track, and he would play... The track that got the most votes would get played, and I can't remember... What, but yeah, anyway, they had four tracks, and it was it was all a bit of a... Kind of just a bit of fun, really, because he always used to play all four tracks anyway. It's just that whichever one won, he would play at a certain time. And um, then, so... Some of our more tech-savvy kind of people who are into Utah Saints would um, somehow manage to make some little Java scripts, which they then could just put leave on all night. So if we got involved with, say, a couple of guitar bands and there was a competition um, to who got the most votes, we'd always they would get like, I don't know, 1,000 or maybe 1,200, and ours would be pushing 20,000 because <laughs> we had this JavaScript going on all night. So, um, so it was, there was definite advantages of having a kind of that link between technology, games, and just generally people who, who are interested in technology. Well, speaking of games, I mean, if people have a look on YouTube, and I'll, uh, I'll put a link in our show notes, you're actually on Games Master. Now, you're, you're on there, and you, you actually won a golden joystick. Yeah, um... Tim won the golden joystick. Yeah. <laughs> I'm over it now, but Tim won it. <laughs> yeah, so, and the thing was, and I remember that day really well, and because it was quite, it was so bad day for Jez, because I remember after I had to go, that was filmed down in Oxford, and it was filmed in the prison at Oxford, which is now, I think, around Maison Hotel. And afterwards, I had to go to a wedding that day, so I put, I like, I kind of blew the wedding out, which is people who are into Games Master totally understand why you blow a wedding out to go on Games Master to get the golden joystick, which Too is right. more important than the wedding. So, but I had to get back to the wedding, so uh, and the wedding was near Leeds. So I got a, I got a taxi, uh, but I didn't have any money. So Jez lent me the money for the taxi, and I remember it was like 150, 150 quid it was, and I found the receipt last year. <laughs> so I still haven't got it back. <laughs> but so, the game itself was was a being on Games Master was a, a a brilliant experience though. We didn't have any. It was WWF wrestling, and I I think I was Randy Savage. I remember that because of the yeah, name. Yeah, you zoomed on that name as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so, so we did, and we didn't get. We got about five minutes to play it before, and um, yeah, I remember. Um, and then they just went through and filmed it, and. Somehow I won by because I didn't know very well the combinations that you're supposed to use, but somehow I won and I got a golden joystick, which then I took home. I thought this is awesome. I put it on the uh, 
I put it on prior place on the in the lounge and mysteriously when I went around tour and I came back it had disappeared and um and my wife put it in the loft. Not my wife, my girlfriend, sorry, at the time, <laughs> put it put it in uh, put it in the loft. And uh and it was lost for about fifteen years. And uh and then I found it a few years ago. So I kind of pulled it out again. And now someone else has taken it and it's around someone else's house. So basically, so basically it's a cut along story. So I, I went to school with um it's weird because I lived in the middle of nowhere and I went to school with Jason Bradbury from who used to do a gadget show. Yeah. Um so we went to the same uh, junior school and I'd always kind of kept in touch with him. So Jason's sort of uh he's, he lives about twenty miles away from me now. But um he, yeah, so he 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 saw it. He came over and he didn't realise I, I had a golden joystick. So he's got it now, <laughs> it's a, and he's used it for some of his content. So if you go on if you go on his, Jason's Instagram, you'll see a nice picture of a golden joystick, and that, that's my one. Well, right. on the day you you right, you turn up and you you don't. They switched. They told us we were playing one game, and then about five minutes before we 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 would do on, they they switched the game. I don't know if it was a legal thing or just so that we didn't get in some sneaky practice. But it was it was um, yeah, a wrestling game, and we weren't at that point. We were more used to racing games, to be honest. So it was it was a or so it was a, a little bit out of our comfort zone. I'm just making excuses for why I lost actually. But, <laughs> um, but also it was it was great because it was Dexter Fletcher. Yeah. Dexter Fletcher was was uh, you know he's. Uh, we've always been a big fan of Dexter Fletcher as well, and and he's obviously gone on to to big film things and and that type of thing. But the whole thing had a really nice vibe to it. It was obviously it just to get in a load of um, a load of kids basically and just tell them to make as much noise as they possibly could. And and kids love making noise, so it was <laughs> so it was an easy job. And it was just, but it was within the kind of uh, acoustic setting of a, an old prison. It was just the loudest thing when when people started screaming, and then of course the the guy comes up to present the um, the golden joystick, and we all got really worried because he was massive. <laughs> it comes out of the floor, yeah. But yeah. I mean, the thing about Games Master, why I thought it was cool, because I thought it was all back in the day. It was always quite hard, I thought, to um, to do a TV show on video games and make it look interesting for TV. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because like technology wise, and just the way things worked on telly just to make it look exciting and pull up you know and make a success out of a program because it ran for quite a few years i thought you know and that that was kind of like one of the early shows that first shows that did that i'm actually managed to get computer games onto sort of primetime tv well also talking of primetime tv kind of something good um got really popular and it was used as the opening for the 1992 barcelona olympics by the bbc that must have been pretty amazing to be sitting watching the olympics and hearing your tune coming out yeah, I'm surprised. Well done finding that because that that we've never been asked about that. But yeah, that that happened, and um, basically the reason it was amazing was that everyone was tuned in because it just looked it was just a, such an amazing opening ceremony. And they used the first. Um, I've I've always been a big fan of the band Queen, and the first track they used was Freddie Mercury singing Barcelona, and then it segued into our track. So it was just I think with Utahs we're always about moments. We always like really try and make some kind of moment musically and um that was a big moment for us because it was it was just such a a, a, a very emotional kind of opening um with, with the music on there it's fantastic i know back then a lot of your kind of videos had you know quite like psychedelic digital effects and stuff i mean was did you know were you aware much of like the demo scene because it seemed like there was quite a bit of crossover there like you know similar styles yeah like, um one of our videos i think it's believe in me we kind of used like a lot of like virtual reality and looking at stuff now it's weird because you look back and like believe in me was in 93 i think so i look back at the video now and you know what what we were kind of wanting to do because we had lots of ideas and stuff we wanted to do but we felt you know the technology kind of was you know where we kind of envisaged it in our head of what the ideas we wanted to do. so it was frustrating so kind of did and obviously we we're working within limited budgets <laughs> yeah i mean we were always trying to get to, it was i mean when we look back it was pretty frustrating to be honest because we, we always had loads of ideas for 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 things but it was just so expensive to do and it looks ridiculous now when you say you think of how expensive it was so um in an effort to get around that actually we we put an advert out saying do you want to be in utah saints tell us what you do basically <laughs> and and we'll try and make it make something happen uh but that kind of backfired we, well we thought we'd been really smart by putting adverts in random places like we put one in farmers weekly and and as well as the music papers and the tech magazines and stuff and we got we got a lot, quite a lot back in the day letters <laughs> got a lot, quite a lot of letters and through that we did get a couple of people who were sort of making 
fairly at the time cutting edge things mostly on amiga actually amiga used to be good for, for kind of those computer graphic visual things yeah there's a guy who did the guy who did um when we went on tour i mean at the time it, 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 it was cool because we took um we just took the tv screens and we placed them all over the stage and we got a friend of ours to do some visuals and that and he, he did them all on the amiga um but it was cool because he, we tried to once create the an effect like the whole stage was moving left to right so at the time it was kind of for the budget we had and what we were doing it was quite cutting edge but you know whereas now look at our eric prids and the chemical brothers what they're doing and you know it's, it's like mind-blowing yeah and mentioning the amiga there as well um there was a game uh for the a500 burning rubber and they had yeah. a really cool utah saints intro i remember that um how did that happen well <laughs> it's funny that one because that is like i said we were making a list of the games we're trying to remember and that and i until five minutes before this call i did not even know that we were on that game so you maybe could tell me about that game because i have no idea what it's about obviously it's a car game i think yeah well i read that um the guys were in a gig in Newcastle, a Utah Saints gig, quite a small one, and they ran up to the manager and managed to get his number, and then eventually <laughs> that kind of intro happened. It was to- oh, oh. totally different compared to the game. You know? but- right. Uh, no, I, I no, that's cool, because we had a mad Scottish manager who probably just agreed to it, and uh, yeah, and, and it happened. But I, I didn't know about that. So that's awesome, though, but I, I'm going to go and check it out properly, though, now. Yeah, the, yeah. Game, the game itself was kind of just like a like an outrun kind of game, wasn't it? A racing game. Yeah, because I love I love well I loved outrun anyway. So um, oh, no, I'll do it. I will check it out because there's um there's a place and we have we haven't been to it in Leeds. You know, yeah, and it's called Arcade Club. Yeah. and and it looks wicked because it's got. I saw a video. Of, so there's a guy in there, and he it's one of these places. You can, it's got all the old every single old machine and pinball, and you can just pay with a fixed price and go in and. Um, you can play games all night without having to put money in, so just everything's free after you've paid your entrance fee. I thought that's a genius idea because it's got all the old machines. And it's got Outrun in there. Yeah, I saw a video of a guy, a guy walking off the street and he and he just sat down at Outrun and he finished it straight off. And I was like, that's impressive. So I never finished Outrun. It's like I never finished. There was one game in my life. Well, there's two games in my life because we we had there's a game called Scramble that I used to love, and I never finished Scramble. And then when we were making our second album in we we're in a studio in London called Olympic, um, and there was a game that me and Jazz both got addicted to called Skitchin. So Skitchin, if you Google it, it, it Skitchin is uh, inline skate, inline roller skating. So you roller skate down this road, and then it was in America, and you you then you like you hang onto the back of a car, <laughs> and then you get momentum, and then you kind of let it release from the car, and then you drive, go to another car, and then you knock people over and stuff like that. So it's kind of like an early Grand Theft Auto, it's so good, good but it's, and I had quite a cool little soundtrack and that, and uh, I think it was on the Sega. Um, but yeah, if you if you check it out, it's called Skitching. So you guys were involved with the launch of the Philips CDI. How did that go? Well, that was interesting because basically we we so uh, just a little bit of context. We we um, we we'd had three top tens and uh, so and we sold probably I don't know quarter of a million albums uh, in America and about 100,000 here. Uh, so things were going pretty well. And we'd, we'd made all that music on the basic equipment we were talking about earlier in a small studio in in Leeds, which is, you know, which had a very basic setup. And we'd made all those, those tracks. And, and so we kind of, but we were still a bit unsure about how that had happened. So um, the record company were really keen uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, the American record company and the, the UK one, to, to get us into a big studio with a big producer. So we we moved down to London and went into a, a big studio called Olympic, which is a really famous big studio. It had four rooms in it and had a little programming room, which was kind of new for them, um, in the basement. So we, we rented that because it was a cheap way to, to be in, in that building. And um, we, we just sort of started working there. And I think we kind of lost our way a little bit because three things happened. One was that um, the record company over here, the KLF had split up and the record company over here were kind of going, you guys sound a bit like the KLF, you should kind of try and do something like the KLF and we're thinking, no, we should try and do something like the Utah Saints really. And then um, to the American record company, Nine Inch Nails were just number one in, in America and they kind of wanted us to take a harder uh, direction. And then the the Prodigy put out 
either generation or fat of the land i can't remember which one came out yeah generation generation they put it out when we were in the studio and we were like our stuff isn't i thought our stuff isn't as good as this whereas what we should have been saying is we do our own stuff and we're not trying to compete with the prodigy but that album was so amazing that i was just thinking right we need to to really up our game so we had we had so basically what i'm trying to say is the result of that was quite a long process in amongst all that phillips were launching the cdr and in their words, they wanted two underground cutting edge bands, and we were one of them. I can't remember who the other one was, and then two megastars. And they were talking at the megastars. They were talking about for the launch with thing people like uh, Elton John or Michael Jackson, so th- those kind of status people. Mm. So they said to, to us, "Can you come up with the idea for a game?" And, and they hooked us up with a programmer from Cambridge um, called Dan. Somebody I've got his name, second name now. But anyway. Can you come up with an idea for a game? So we looked at the technology and we worked out that we had a track called Train, which has never come out actually, which is which was built around samples from an Intercity 125. Right. So we used the horn for the the, um, the main riff and all the drums were constructed from doors shutting and clanking of trains. And then we had a, a, we'd record a train shooting from left to right and, and that was a big whoosh for the track and stuff like that. Anyway, the whole track was based around that and we wanted to make a game called train so um because also that got around the loading issues because based around cd so i had to keep loading information off the cd depending on it's a bit like choose your own adventure if you if you went a certain direction it would load a certain bit of the game and if you went a different direction it would load a different part of the game but every time that happened the screen would fade to black so to get around that because we didn't want that in our gate a game we were associated with we were based around a train and said that every time the train went into a tunnel, everything went completely black. But what actually it was doing was loading up the next part of the game. Nah, anyway, so we, we found ourselves in London in with Phillips in one of their big exec rooms, me and Tim and our manager, and a lot of people, quite, I don't know, I think they were quite high-ranking people. There were a lot of suits going on in, the build, in this meeting. And they just asked us to kind of give a load of ideas to get this, we just gave him loads of crazy ideas. and Yeah, so I can remember about three of them. And uh, um, this is like early 90s, so bear in mind none of this is going to exist. But we were saying, right, we want to we make a game for that takes in your entire peripheral vision. So it's got some kind of combination of, we hadn't thought of a curved screen, but we thought of a combination of about eight screens going around your head sort of thing. Hmm. So that it was an immersive experience. And then we wanted to, again, it shows at the time, but we wanted to plug something into the printer port that you put on your tongue that gave you little electric shocks. <laughs> so so you tasted and smelt things as you went through the game. And, and then I, I always remember this, because off the top of my head, we just said, a bit like electronic chewing gum. And I just remember about five people all writing down electronic chewing gum. <laughs> so so we were really, really excited about, about the launch of that. And of course, then what happened was our album got delayed. The, the CDI testing got kind of, it just got, usurped by um nintendo and those kind of things coming out so it's it was a shame because it was quite a good idea but and a lot of money they phillips put a lot of money into the r&d of it but it never quite got to where it should yeah exactly. I, I, th- I think i remember reading they lost like a billion dollars on cdi wow yeah but they really tried that. <laughs> <laughs> i really want to play the tongue taser game though that sounds awesome <laughs> yeah <laughs> No, because at the same time, I remember because we were re- we re- renegotiated our contract, and I remember sitting in the meeting, and and we were trying to get something in our contract um, for because you know they, they did different royalty rates for CDs and cassettes and vinyl, and we were trying to negotiate a royalty rate um, for we because we, we said in the future there'll be no moving parts, um, and they were they were like nah, and they wouldn't put anything in, and so obviously now you know music's on USB. And um, but at the time they were like, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, we, we were trying to present. It's called future formats, and we were trying yeah. to generally future formats to recoup R and D in record con- contracts. Generally, future formats would have a, a, a zero royalty rate, and so basically you kind of said, yeah, if something new comes along, we won't take any royalties on it. And yeah, as Tim said, we we were sitting there going, yeah, at some point there might even be music players without any moving parts, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And that kind of got dismissed as, as never going to happen, like Tim says. So it was it was um, a weird time to be involved in technology because the, the ideas were kind of moving faster than the technology could keep up with, if, if that makes sense. Also, Mortal Kombat was a 
hell of a game as well. And you guys were involved in the movie soundtrack, doing a Utah Saints kind of take on it. Um, yeah, that that's kind of how partly how this um, thing came around actually, because I I was talking with I was talking to a guy, a really cool DJ called uh, Lee Futurecast, and he um and he 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 hit me up the other, one the other week, and he said, "Were you involved in Mortal Kombat?" Because he didn't know, and I and I said, "Yes, we were." And uh, I was talking about it, and then he sent me his little video clip, uh, and and I, I, I nothing about this thing called trackers, um, where people kind of recreate um, you know, original uh, movie, you know, original video games um, on on a tracker. And so he sent me this clip of somebody playing the track um, from the Mortal Kombat soundtrack that we did for the end of the movie, and he he said that, the, that people were kind of discussing this on a forum in the dark depths of the internet so um i mean it's, it's really cool that we did it now i'm really pleased we did it but at the time both me and jazz didn't want to do it because we didn't like the riff from the game and we had to use the riff from the game you see so finally we thought okay we'll do it um so we went into the studio outside leeds and spent you know, two or three days on it and then ended up being on soundtrack and funnily enough that is of all the, um, we've been on lots of compilations. Been, we sort of, you know, we've got quite a few gold discs, silver discs, and that. It's the first time we've ever actually got a disc. <laughs> so it's, it, it's, it had pride of place in our studio because the actual soundtrack ended up selling over a million copies. Were you fans of the game? Um, yes, uh, we had it on the Mega Drive. Yeah. Not, didn't it come out with a certificate? It wasn't there a bit of an outcry about it being too gruesome or something? I think that was like one of the games that introduced certificates. Yeah, they they brought them in because of that game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what again? When you look back on it, and just it sounds like we're talking about something like four hundred years ago, but it's it's <laughs> odd that it wasn't that long ago, you know. And, and you wonder where we're going to be in twenty five years' time, and we're just going to zap information via our eyes or something. I don't know. And how we play games is going to be completely different. But but yeah, that game it was it was because of the way some of the characters got you didn't the, the head fly off or something. Can't, yeah, fatality yeah. moves. You could rip the spine out and all sorts. Yeah, yeah that was it. <laughs> Well, you also did some soundtracks for other games, so like Carmageddon, TDR 2000, also Wipeout Fusion. How did you get involved in these titles, and what were the differences needed in creating a game kind of tune or soundtrack compared to an album? Well, Carmageddon, TDR 2000, for starters, was particularly pleased with that because we did this track called Hands Up, and we sampled Nick Cave, basically, and... um, Nobody really sampled Nick Cave at that point, and I don't know if they have since, but we've done done it. We've made sort of effectively a 160 BPM GABA track, which is not the way a lot of people perceive. It's not a track that people would immediately associate with us. I think uh, we played the record company and uh, as a joke kind of said, yeah, we've got another five like this, and they just went a bit white. (laughs) As a a bit, I think kind of, they looked a bit shocked, basically, and and sort of... um, because they didn't want tracks like that. But it fitted for that game, it fitted really well. How all these things come about, sometimes it's who knows each other, but we didn't have any direct um, contact with the, the game developers at all, but we were just so happy that to get tracks on these kind of games because they, they were kind of, quite a lot of these games were kind of fairly cutting edge at the time as well. Well, one really cutting edge in title was uh, Vib Ribbon, which was like this kind of crazy game where you uh, could put your own music CDs in and then, notes would turn into the levels and you were this mad rabbit how did you get involved with that as soon as someone says exactly the words you've just said were there <laughs> <laughs> no, Bib Ribbon um, I really liked it because it was um, I just really liked the look of the game because it was all like vector music generated graphics and the, the earlier vector games that I'd always kind of liked because I was, I was massive on the Asteroids and Battlezone back in the day so it kind of reminded me of that and I like the idea that the actual game was generated by the music um, so I think I think that you could put your own songs in that because I know because we, we had a track on there called Power to the Beats which, which sampled Metallica and Sandman and it also had a vocal from Chuck D from Public Enemy who actually did the vocal for that track for us and so the track was yeah Power to the Beats and uh, so we ended up doing a video for that track and it was cool because we used actually footage from the game in our video um so i was always surprised because i i think that's that game's more of a cult game it never was a massive game but i think it's quite a cult game yeah because i think you could select the tracks that were already on there but then additionally put your cd in and the tracks would be a lot harder than the ones that were originally on it because it would just be a, a generated kind of sequence 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because because it, it was all responding to the music, wasn't it, the game? And, it, and on the surface of it, it looked very simple, simple game. Because I remember there was a quite a lot of debate about whether so it was was it a Sony game? I think. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, and there was a lot of debate about whether or not it was too simple for a game, and it wasn't. You know, the graphics were too too basic, but it was a really addictive game as well. It was like really clever. Well, guys, you know, you, you've always been at the cutting edge. It's been wonderful to kind of get these stories about, you know, your your history and the uh, the amazing experiences that you've had um, during your career. What were you guys working on at the moment then? We did um, Radio G. We did a game called Radio G for the Oculus most more recently. Um, I don't know if you've seen that. It's like a uh, it came out about two three years ago, and it was. It's basically for the Oculus, and it's it's a little bit like Wipeout, and it had that feel to it. So we did a track for that, uh, and then we're currently working on on new Utah Saints things. We did, I mean, we work very very slowly, and then to be honest, a lot of that is to do with just when when we feels right to start making music. And at the moment, there's a big big movement um, for kind of night the sound where we started, and we know that sound really well, and we know the music really well. So it just seemed fairly obvious for us to start properly making music again which is what we're doing now yeah i think you're right that's been a big 90s revival in the last couple yeah of years. we were in the car going to an event and every single sample was uh kind of 90s remixes oh, on radio one yeah everything we heard on new music it was all 90s samplers yeah, yeah. It's, it's like it's kind of so it's like 90s it's 90s stuff but it's kind of done with like mm. different production and and you know and a kind of modern take on it but it's kind of it's weird because we were there at the start and we're making it and we still kind of we're still, you know, we're still out DJing and we create um, a stage at a festival called Beat Herder, which is up in uh, Lancashire. Um, so we're still kind of right on top of the music. And like we haven't put anything out as Utah Saints probably since uh, 2011. But we kind of we only sort of feel like we want to put something out and we feel we've got something to say. And we've kind of both gone off and done different things. Like I, I, I've kind of I've got my own label and Jazz um, been back to um, do his master's. You know, so it's kind of like we had other projects kind of we wanted to do, but we, we kind of just got back into studio and started doing some new music. So we're hopefully going to get that out next year. It'd be nice to do some more video games as well, because um, I mean, the, the only thing I find about the video thing is now that, that, that a lot of the games, they're, they're almost like feature film productions yeah. and they've all kind of got their own um, internal sort of network of things. So the music, uh, so I understand that. So it's kind of. It's a different approach now, taken with the games, I think. But it'd be, it'd be, it would be nice to do something again because we like we like we did, you know, the FIFA um, 2001. So maybe FIFA 2021, 20 years on, it'd be, it'd be awesome to have a track on that. They need to get on it. Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tim James, it's been a pleasure having you both on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thank oh, you very wicked. much, and, and keep up the good work. Yeah.